Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, April 29th, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So uh, President Biden gave his first pseudo state of the State of the Union that first year presidents give when they're not actually doing the constitutionally required message to the Congress on the condition of the country. Um, uh, so the pseudo state of the nation. Um, and uh, it was very revealing, I thought, uh, and very interesting, uh, although as I say in a column in the New York Post today, uh, I thought the first 15 minutes were suggestive of a performance triumph, not a, you know, not a substantive triumph and nothing, and very little that I would agree with, but that um, the speech was going better than I ever would have expected that it would. And then by about minute 45, uh, or I said at some point in the, in the piece, I say, I felt like Mort Saul at the premiere of Exodus yelling, let my people go. It had gotten so turgid and so uh, monomaniacal in the, we're going to spend a trillion dollars on this, and we're going to spend a trillion dollars on that, and we're going to spend a trillion dollars on the other thing, and we're going to spend $5 trillion on this. We have a once-in-a-lifetime chance to do this. We have a twice-in-a-lifetime chance to do that. It was sort of like listening to your kid talk to you about what they want to get on Amazon when they're sitting on the computer going through Amazon and buy, and they put things in the basket and it's like there's 200 things in the basket that they want you to buy for them. And at some point your brain just can't, uh, can't, can't assimilate any more. This is always true of these like laundry list speeches, but uh, th- this was a, a matter of a different order. And Abe, I think you had some real sense of this. Yeah, also. I think it's, I think that's a very good analogy because what, what it, what it ultimately made me think um, after hearing this, this massive wish list um, was that there is something that came across that was actually kind of childish about it um, uh, in a way that um, actually almost kind of um, gave me relief in that I felt like the, the big government project is ultimately just so untethered to reality um, that, there's less to fear here in the end than, than I would have thought. Hey, uh, so Christine and Noah, let me, I was listening to Jonah Goldberg's podcast and he had A.B. Stoddard on uh, from Real Clear Politics. And she said something I hadn't really thought of, which is she thinks the Biden people were not actually prepared for the political circumstances they find themselves in, that that all relevant indications and information would have suggested on election day that they would not hold the Senate. And therefore, that the Democratic agenda would, by definition, have to be more either, either would be a wish list thing with no hope of any kind of passage, or they really would have to try to figure out ways to get things done in some semi-bipartisan way just to pull two or three Republicans over and do things with reconciliation. And uh, because of the unbelievable political blunder of Donald Trump in, in depressing the Republican vote in Georgia, they got those two seats in Georgia. And suddenly 
it is theoretically possible for them to enact the progressive wish list. And they're just like on a toboggan going down an icy, you know, slope. Like, okay, I guess we could kind of do everything, maybe. Um, and that this has untethered them, as, as Abe would say, from some reality. Okay, yeah. but the, but there's. I just want. I have the idea of like Biden in a toboggan with with Kamala steering it now in my head. Um, but there there was something that struck me about the speech in particular, which is that for for a president that whose advisors and who himself has been constantly invoking comparisons to the past, particularly to FDR and these sort of historic inflection point we're at, et cetera, et cetera. This is a surprisingly ahistorical speech in the sense that. We actually have tried a lot of the programs that he's claiming are going to be are so revolutionary and so necessary. You know, we have Head Start. We have, you know, we have all kinds of social service support programs for for lower income Americans. We we've tried a lot of this stuff, and it hasn't always been successful. So the idea that we have to pile on top of those unsuccessful programs, new programs, is uh, to me kind of baffling. The other thing, though, that I'll point out, and this has bothered me even when Biden was a candidate. The idea that all of these things are packed. Oh, the second thing, we can't afford this. The idea that this is only going to be paid for by the wealthy is an obvious lie, because if you look at how they budgeted out paying for these programs for the first couple of years, you might be able to just over, you know, tax the wealthy more to get them. But eventually the real price tag for these things will come due and it will require taxing people who are not at all wealthy. But the third thing and the thing that I think in terms of framing this, that I liked how Tim Scott responded to it. The idea that the government should be in the business of saving your soul, the word soul is used a lot by Biden and his people, like I'm here to restore America's soul. That's not the government's job. The idea that the government's job is to cradle to grave raise your children for you through by throwing all kinds of government programs at you to help you structure your family life better. That is not the government's job. The idea that we are America, we are democracy, he, Biden said, as a, as the representative of the federal government. I don't like that. And I'm not sure how many Americans will like that message when they start to feel it in their in their paychecks, when they start to see it in inflation. So I, for all of the soaring rhetoric and, and constant comparisons to FDR, I think this really was blinkered in its approach to looking at the real costs, both kind of the, the, the social and cultural costs, a lot of his messaging, and the actual fiscal costs of his messaging. Yeah, can I just add, I mean, what really, and this is in keeping with Christine's comment, what, what really annoyed me about the speech and um, uh, was this, he, was, he tried to ultimately wrap up the idea that America's future is bright, and although we've been through hell, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're on our way back because you can't count America out, and we have to show that to the Chinese and all the rest of it. Um, but, and I'm normally a sucker for the message of American uh, greatness. Um, and none of it moved me precisely last night, precisely because he seemed to base his entire argument about American greatness on this idea that we're great because we're going to spend our way into a new future, which has nothing to do with what is great about America and 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 why our chance? Why, why, as you kept saying, why we're going to win the twenty first century? Look, let me give you an example of the greatness of America thing that he that he snuck up to, and then would not deliver on, which is because of the contradiction in his coalition's ideas about things, which is that he introduced 
Speaker Pelosi and Madam Vice President, right? And he said, I now get to say these words, right? Madam Vice President, it's about time. No president has ever said these words and it's about time. This was a moment to take a step back and say, look how far we've come. We have a woman vice president who is also a woman of color. She herself is a woman of color from two different kinds of ethnic and racial backgrounds. She is second in line to the presidency of the United States. Sitting here is Senator Tim Scott, right? Here's this guy. Here's that. Blah, blah, blah. Da, da, da. Look how far we've come. But they can't say look how far we've come. Because the systemic racism argument that has overtaken the party requires us not to believe that there has been much progress, if any, while it is staring us gaslit in the face because there is a black woman sitting in the vice president's chair at the semi-state of the union. And it's a missed opportunity uh, because... Biden is circumscribed by the ideological madness that has overtaken his party. A couple of things on um, uh, AB's point, which I think is pretty, pretty interesting, but not 100% compelling. And I'll say why. Uh, but first of all, though, it reminds me very much of a condition that Republicans found themselves in uh, in November of 2016. Um, they did not think Donald Trump was going to win. And no matter what they tell you. Nobody, nobody bought it. And one of the things that stuck out at me from that point, I still remember, and I think it was Alyssa Farah who ended up going to work for um, Mike Pence, said in the wake of this that, you know, the Republicans she were talking to woke up the morning after the election and said, oh, my God, we can do everything. We can we can reform the tax code. We can repeal Obamacare. We can do all these things we never thought we had the opportunity to do. And they didn't. They got tax cuts. But they didn't reform the tax code. They didn't change the tax code in ways that they had wanted to for the last 20 years. They sure didn't re repeal Obamacare. They had a, a laundry list of things they, they hoped to achieve, but they didn't have the political mandate they thought they did, or at least that they should have, um, which is why I don't necessarily know if AB's, um, AB's idea works, because it's not, a, it's not as much about getting things done as it is the statement of principles. The bidding war in the Democratic Party predates this administration. The primaries devolved into a bidding war that was entirely about spending proposals, not about what they would do. When Joe Biden introduced the, his infrastructure plan, three, like almost $3 trillion infrastructure plan, AOC said, this is great, but it should be $10 trillion. On what? Didn't matter. It's just the ticket. It was just the bottom line that matters. It's just a, the statement that we were willing to spend to the extent that we're willing to spend and they real, and it's not as though this is like a disingenuous thing, a put thing on their part. They genuinely believe that a commitment in the form of a price tag is, is itself a, a genuine, valid contribution to governance. When Joe Biden, for the glaring example of this in Joe Biden's speech yesterday, was when he began to address great power competition and the great power competition that we face in the form of uh, declining but aggressive Russia and a rising and um, strategic China. And what was his solution to that? Domestic spending. We will beat the great power competitors, our peer competitors, by investing in childcare. And this, but this, and this is actually another one of those great ironic moments because his party's uh, left flank, which is now becoming more the dominant uh, 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 part of the Democratic Party, 
the anti-racism standard isn't going to allow for that kind of competition domestically. We see it in all the ways that anti-racist thinking in education actually wants to eliminate testing, eliminate competition, eliminate all of the things that actually would put us on par, particularly in, in terms of STEM education and whatnot with China. And I want to, one of the other things about the price tag here, there's, there's, there's a philosophical and moral point that they're trying to make by expanding a lot of the programs that are already in existence for low-income folks like Head Start and whatnot to the middle class, right? These And there was some acknowledgement of that, like this is going to be for everyone. Everyone's going to get this money. It's everyone gets a new car today. The problem, of course, is that what they're doing is enlisting into the Democratic coalition a group that has in the past been uh, contained a lot of in more independent voters, right? Middle class Americans who are happy to get like, you know, some money subs for subsidized childcare, probably, but the idea isn't to actually build back better or make us more competitive with China. It's to enlarge the Democratic Party's coalition to increase the number of union jobs, particularly teachers union jobs with these new, you know, universal pre-K uh, uh, proposals. So I feel like getting that those middle class voters uh, locked in with promises of all kinds of free stuff is something that is worth thinking about in terms of how the Republicans are going to respond to that messaging, because that's going to be tough for Republicans, I think. That's where I think the issues of inflation, issues of anti-racism and culture war stuff does does uh, serve some political purpose for Republicans. But it, it's a tough sell. I I don't know. I mean, and this is where I think, uh, Noah, maybe your dismissal of, of A.B. Stoddard's point um, uh, is a little off. Uh, had Republicans won the two Georgia seats, maybe Biden would have proposed programs this expansive and wild just to get them voted down so he could tell his people that he delivered. But generally speaking, politicians don't like to lose. They don't want to put up bills that make, that make them look impotent. And uh, just as I think it was somewhat canny for them to seize the day when they actually got the bounty that they wanted. Um, they, so uh, they're improvising is, is, is part, I think, of what she's saying. Like, this was not expected. They, they, they probably thought they were going to win. And so they had months to think about where they were going to go and how they were going to play this and all of that. And then suddenly it's like, let's go for broke, right? I mean, and and this remains the ultimate question of the next 16 months or something till the election, which is, is can Biden shift the Overton window so that it's not just his people who think that it's great, or not even all of his people, but most of his people, since he's getting, seems to be getting like 90% support from Democrats, who think that it's just great to spend six trillion new dollars on top of a federal budget that is, you know, basically to increase the size of government more radically than at any time, certainly since the New Deal and possibly ever. Um, who, who, who is going to want that aside from, you know, uh, two thirds of the Democratic coalition? You're going to have no Republicans signing on, and you might have independents going, wait a minute, this is a little crazy. And that's that's the opinion part. And then you have the real complicated part, which is if this actually were to happen or some version of it, there's no question 
that there will be an inflationary spiral. You can't have the federal government going into the marketplace, throwing two to six trillion dollars around and not create the conditions under which the public sector is in competition with the private sector for workers, for goods, for uh, commodities in order to do whatever it is that the public sector is going to do. And that causes inflation. One of the key causes of inflation is precisely um, an expansive public sector that starts to compete with the private sector for all of these things. And there will be real world consequences and there it's almost mathematical. Um, you know, and we're, you know, as, as I keep saying, we, we're seeing all the signs of what an overheated economy might look like. And by the way, one last point, he's saying we need to do this now because we're screwing up and everything is terrible and, you know, good jobs, yada, da, 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 right? This morning, we heard that in the first quarter of 2021, the GDP grew 6.4% on an annualized basis, Okay. 1.6% in the first three months of 2021. The unemployment rate fell to 6% from a high, I believe, of was it was it 24 or 30% at the you know at the worst moment of the pandemic. And what's happening? There's unemployment benefits being paid out by the federal government through September. That means that there's already competition for workers who can stay home and not have to work because they are getting paid essentially a commensurate salary to what they might make in in the private sector which needs them now so this is this is the this is the rebuttal to the expansive nature of the Biden speech and he's got no margin in the senate and five seats in the house and you know, those we, we keep saying Republicans may win back the House in 2022. Republicans could win back the House this year. Five retirements or you know unexpected deaths or something like that—that's normal. And you don't know where where they'll where they'll come from. You'll have no idea where they'll come from because obviously it's random selection essentially. But, you know, you could have five, you could have Republicans win five specials this year. Anyway, that's my, I've now completed my rant. Well, I have, I have one tiny other little rant um, on my favorite subject, which is schools. Uh, Biden gave a, a sort of self-congratulatory shout out about how he's opened most schools, um, a patent falsehood patent falsehood. Because if you define school as we all in the before times define school, which is open five days a week with a teacher teaching it's that teacher subject matter to students live in person in a class, not hybrid, not remote, not with a monitor while the kids zoom in a room. That's not at all what's what this nation's school children, even in places that have officially opened up. So he's standing in the District of Columbia, which claims that schools are open. And I can attest firsthand, obviously, my kids are not back in school. Many middle school and high schoolers in this country are not yet back in school, particularly in areas where the other shout out I gave where teachers unions are strong. So there was no mention in his discussion of what school kids need, school children. And again, to contrast with what Tim Scott focused on a bit in his rebuttal, um, 
people care about that. People care about the learning loss, the social emotional challenges, and most importantly, the lack of ability. There was just another article about this, about particularly mothers and returning, being able to return to the workforce, which they cannot do unless schools reopen, not because schools are babysitters, but because this is the way our society has for a long time structured its workforce around uh, school hours and whatnot. So the fact that he would claim victory over something that he hadn't yet accomplished, particularly in a city where many of its school children who are in public school systems still languish at home, unable to return in person, um, uh, struck me as kind of uh, alarming. And I do, I really think, I've said this before, Republicans need to hammer the school reopening message and the school choice message in the 2022 election. It's a lot of parents who wouldn't otherwise have supported ideas like school choice are much more open to them now after the past year's experience. Well, Tim Scott did that in his rebuttal, but we, we can talk about that in the middle. I want to talk about a phrase that Biden used that I saw on Twitter. People were saying, oh, this is really the takeaway from the speech. This is the thing that will last. This is the point that we will all remember. And it came in this paragraph. Uh, 20 million Americans lost their jobs in the pandemic, working and middle-class Americans. At the same time, roughly 650 billionaires in America saw their net worth increase by more than $1 trillion. Let me say it again, 650 people increased their wealth by more than one trillion during this pandemic, and they're now worth more than four trillion. My fellow Americans, trickle down, trickle down economics has never worked. It's time to grow the economy from the bottom and the middle out. Okay, wh what does that mean exactly? So, um, it's a pear-shaped economy, John, pear-shaped. <laughs> okay, no, but I'm saying <clears throat> to grow the economy from the bottom and the middle out. I'm not even sure what that phrase means, except if you really want to parse it, what it means is uh, expropriation and redistribution. We grow the economy from the bottom and the middle out by taking money from these people and somehow salting it through the bottom and the middle so that it will, you know, it, or not salting, planting it with the bottom and the middle so that instead of trickling down, it'll grow up, right? But there's this is a total non sequitur. <clears throat> right? Everybody understands, I mean, everybody understands, whatever. Those 650 billionaires uh, got, uh, you know, a trillion dollars in value out of the pandemic because uh, they were providing a service that made the pandemic bearable. We're talking about, you know, Amazon, we're talking about everybody <clears throat> who made money because largely what they were doing was, was creating a virtual economy in place of the physical economy or part of the physical economy, but connecting it to high tech and all of that that made grocery deliveries, getting packages, all, everything that you can possibly name, right? And so that's bad, that was bad. I mean, granted, okay, it doesn't sound good that they got a lot of money while everybody else was suffering during the pandemic, right? But I, I, I don't know, I just, I don't understand, we need to grow the economy from the bottom. Well, what it made me think of um, is that growing the economy from the bottom and the middle out is actually how capitalism works uh, in the sense that trickle-down economics is a misnomer. Uh, employees get paid before business owners make any profits. Right. Uh, you know, you have, to, you have to have the business up and running, which, is, which costs you. Um, uh, and, and, and in the form of paying others for goods and services before you see a profit. See, I also think, so he went with the, they should just pay their fair share. Let's be fair, they should just pay their fair share. 
which I think is a perfectly acceptable kind of bit of meaningless rhetoric to use the term fair share because it could mean whatever whatever you want it to mean if you're talking about you know equity and stuff like that. But um, if you're talking about um, do they need to pay their fair share or do we want a larger economy? Like, do they need to be dealt with, you know, in this way where more is taken from them than for others and given to others because it's that's fair or because what we're looking for is to grow the American economy? So he, he sort of has it both ways because the two are not the same thing at all, as Abe, as Abe indicates, you know, um, and uh, and it, it just seems like a very strange. I don't, you know, it's it, it. I'm sure that it was like catnip and ambrosia to the unions to whom for to which he gave credit for the creation of the American middle class. He said unions built the American middle class. That is a lie. That is a crazy lie. There was an American. There was a prosperous and healthy American middle class before, you know, at the turn of the 20th century. Country was not dominated by extreme poverty, and in any case, the middle class in the United States, many working class people were raised into middle class standards by unions, whose efforts in this regard helped contribute to the destruction of their own industries over over time. Right. That's. Steel workers, automobile workers, people like that who had who had unions that struck very generous deals and had fantastic benefits and got all this stuff. And then when international competition really hit, they were all wiped out. And we've been living with the consequences of this for 50 years. And this fantasy that this bizarre period, 15, 20-year period in which you know unions unions work to provide largesse to very specific individual industries and got success for them, and then became unpopular in the country because they helped lead to a job cratering for the for for a lower you know lower skilled lower paid lower lower uh, class people. Yeah, that's why this is all blindingly stupid, and why I think that they would probably be doing this in the absence of uh, of a of a Senate uh, majority, because. How many people in this country are members of a private sector union? Fourteen uh, million. Six percent, I think. Right. If you add public sector unions, you if get you to add public 10%. sector unions, thirty a third of the public sector workforce is unionized. Six percent right. of the private Most sector of them are workforce is unionized. Fourteen million people in this country are a member of a union. Fourteen million people in this country, with an adult population over two hundred million, was the audience for that sort of thing. The audience for this sort of idea that Buy American, for example, you know, my, my people have been severely limited from providing exemptions. The, the, you know, the government will purchase American-made goods. They already do. They have, by statute, for years. Right. To the, there right, was and, a lot and, of that. And what it does is, is, is it, again, as you say, crowds out public se- or private sector borrowing right. potential and raises the price of goods so Americans feel it. So it makes growing the economy harder. And anybody who knows anything about this recognizes these platitudes as being completely vacuous. But they're de- they're designed to appeal to a very, very narrow audience mm-hmm. and not anybody else outside of it. But the, who was watching this sort of thing last night? Probably those 14 million people but tuning in and clapping. 
But there's also, they see fertile uh, future union membership in uh, the fields that they're in, encouraging the federal government to expand and throw money at, like childcare. Pre, you know, the universal pre-K will create a whole lot of new teachers that need to unionize. The, the elder care population, the care workers for elder care also can be unionized, right? So there's an idea, and you hear even, particularly on the progressive left flank, AOC is always talking about good union jobs, good union jobs. Union jobs are not steel workers anymore, right? They're care workers. They're educators. They're Those are the largest, most powerful unions, uh, the teachers unions in particular. And that is who that message was absolutely targeting. And they ha- they do see a potential expanded voting block there. These people spend a lot of money to get Democrats elected, and they're very successful doing so. But that's right. an even more important point, because the idea that they're trying to promulgate is that we can revivify the manufacturing economy with, you know, a snap of the fingers, but the manufacturing economy is, is pretty much at the rate it would be in the absence of all the inducements in the world are not going to rebuild the manufacturing economy because the service sector is where American economic performance is. It's, it's our primary source of exports. We're a service economy. And to fail to acknowledge that reality puts you in the, this alternate universe in which you're just making all these promises about what you can do, but they, they have no bearing on the real world. And so if you're un- completely untethered to the real world, why wouldn't you just say whatever it is you want to say? You can say, we're just, just going to, you know, we can make wind turbines in, in, in Pittsburgh. Why not? It doesn't matter that Pittsburgh is a medical town now. It doesn't matter that Pittsburgh primary industry is medical manufacturing, medical services, and it has totally reinvented itself and is no longer a, a manufacturing town. It hasn't been for decades. You just, just say whatever you want because your your vision of the world just doesn't exist or is antiquated or is rooted in the 20th century. I don't even know. I mean, you know, there was also this point, which is the, the key was the key point in this regard <clears throat> that, you know, we should make electric cars in America. We can make the batteries for them and we should make the cars in America by America. The government's only going to buy American. We can do this. We can make these cars in America. We are making these cars in America. We don't need to spend four trillion more dollars to make these cars in America. If 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 the electric car is genuinely the wave of the future, if in fact by twenty thirty five the electric car will be a better, more efficient, cleaner, uh, and and simpler way to have a you know to have a car, the entire world economy can rejigger itself in eighteen months to produce electric cars. I mean, I use the example. Yeah, but right. what we can't do in this country is strip mine all the material you need to make a lithium ion battery. Right, but that's the sort of right. thing you got to do in sub-Saharan <laughs> Africa. Right, but okay. So, but my point is, the great example of this is fracking. Right, there was no such thing as fracking until two thousand seven. In twenty twelve, five years later. There were $6 billion export cargo systems built from scratch in in no time whatsoever to prepare for the moment, which happened about three seconds later, that we were going to have net export of the natural gas that was pulled out by fracking. That's what happens when something is profitable. It is it washes away all it, it it happens without somebody <clears throat> a gs15 in washington declaring that things are really good and that now is time for a lithium battery it'll work it won't work they'll have a breakthrough or they won't have a breakthrough 
And then these cars won't cost $100,000. They will cost $25,000. And everybody will want them. And you're not going to have the federal government. It won't be the necessity that the federal government builds 500,000 charging stations because it'll be profitable to have a charging station. A charging station blockbuster will arise up so that people can have charging stations or they'll install them in their own driveways, which is actually what you know, wealthy people who have Teslas too. They have their own personal charging stations. So he wants the federal government to do things that the federal government doesn't need to do. Except it does need to do if your members of your cabinet, like Jennifer Granholm, are heavily invested in the industries that you're now promoting as president, like the electric uh, car battery manufacturer Proterra, which now some people are calling on an IG investigation of Grand Holmes involvement. I mean, and, and you can probably find half a dozen of these. And I know this is how Washington works, but there is a reason why they're promoting, want to throw federal money at things that can't, that the market itself isn't rewarding. It's because it will also line the pockets of people who are who are either in the administration or give a lot of money for re-election for this administration. Right. Guys, I got to ask you whether you've made your will. Okay, because without a trust or will, how will your loved ones know your wishes? Who gets your possessions? Your choice for medical care? Answer those questions and give your family peace of mind by creating an estate plan at Trust and Will. At trustandwill.com, setting up an estate plan is simple, convenient, and secure for as little as $39. You can nominate guardians for your children, determine who gets your stuff, and plan for future medical care, all from the comfort of your home. Hiring a traditional estate attorney can cost thousands, and using a one-size-fits-all template is not nearly specialized enough. Trust and will documents are designed by estate planning experts and customized for the state you live in. And with live customer support seven days a week, trustandwill.com's team is available to answer any questions you have while setting up your plan. Trust and Will is the most trusted name in online estate planning, the category leader on Trustpilot, and they've helped hundreds of thousands of people protect their families' assets and legacy, gain peace of mind, at trustandwill.com slash commentary and get 10% off plus free shipping of your customized legal documents. Don't wait. Go right now. This is really important. Get 10% off plus free shipping at trustandwill.com slash commentary. That's trustandwill.com slash commentary. Um, so Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina delivered the uh, uh, rebuttal, the Republican rebuttal to the president's uh, speech. And I, there's not much competition in this regard uh, because this is, of course, no, a notoriously impossible job uh, where uh, that has uh, tripped up many a person or created uh, uh, inadvertently comic moments, like when Marco Rubio took out a water bottle and took a big swig while he was giving, while he was making his first starring appearance uh, as the rebuttal speaker in 2013, I think. Um, but so I think it's not much of a competition. I think that Senator Tim Scott's rebuttal was the single best rebuttal speech that has ever been delivered since this thing started, which was, I don't know, around 25 years ago. I don't quite remember. It wasn't like it wasn't a species of thing that anybody really paid attention to until I think Clinton's years. Anyway, um, anybody want to? Yeah, he was absolutely transcendent. Um, it was a brilliant speech extremely well delivered. Um, and the, my biggest takeaway from it was that 
there really wasn't a rebuttal so much to this administration and its policies and its preferences. It was some of that, but it really wasn't central to it. What it was rebutting was the press, the distinctions between the press and um, this administration maybe aren't a little more narrow than they possibly should be. But nevertheless, he was focused primarily on the narratives that are promulgated in media outlets and the opinion that leaks into reporting. And, um, particularly around racial narratives and uh, how the Republican Party approaches racial narratives. I thought it was particularly um, easy to the way in which he rebutted. He took on the Democrats' approach to infrastructure, saying that, you know, all the things that you think of when you think of infrastructure, we support, which is a a really clever and kind of Socratic way to uh, address the Democratic Party's efforts to redefine infrastructure to be whatever your imagination can envision infrastructure being, um, just to say, listen, you know what it is. We know what it is. That's what it is. What they want is not what it is. And that's intuitive. Um, but a, primarily his approach to, to racial, racial issues and what he talked about were, were media narratives, not necessarily Democratic Party talking points, um, which was a th- clever way to thread a needle because the Republican Party and the Republican Party's base voters aren't that interested in governing. They're very interested in cultural narratives. They're very fired up about the press and about um, maltreatment of them and condescension toward them and uncharitable assumptions about them. And to kind of marry those two themes in a, a very effective message from a very establishmentarian Republican figure, I thought was a really clever and really well done and beneficial to the health of the party. He he also, I mean, I agree with that. I think one thing that struck me about his response is that, you know, we've been told and Joe Biden himself constantly is telling us uh, the American people, just he's just average Joe. He really understands the average American. But at this point in his long career, does he? I, I'm not so sure he does. He tells us he does. But what the sense I got from Tim Scott's uh, response was, I agree with no, it wasn't a direct response to Biden so much as it was actually here's how a lot of Americans feel. And it was very straightforward. It was spoken in a way that was, you know, that, uh, devoid of jargon and these phrases. In fact, he deconstructed some of those phrases. Um, and it's incredibly notable. And obviously he proved the point about taking on the media as being the right way, because while he said, you know, this is not, we're not a racist country. We are, which is not the same thing as saying racism doesn't exist. He says we're not a racist country. And he, and he outlined some of his own personal experiences of racism. Right. That Let connects me, uh, the people. And then he's called an Uncle Tim by left Twitter. Uncle right. Tim, a racist oh, he, slur. He, he, invite, he, he was very clever because he yeah. invited that attack on him, said the left calls me. He's, he's been left called calls that. Me yeah. Uncle Tom exactly. all the time. And yeah. what did they do? Just that. They did it. They <laughs> proved his point. Yes. It was like, yeah, it's like giving the, yeah. the rat a pellet of food. He threw that at him and they gobbled it up. But I, the I racism was, that I experienced yeah. is the racism yes. that they're advocating now, telling you that the color of your skin matters right. more than anything else about you. Right. Here's here. Let me let me just read a couple of quotes. OK, this was also an interesting way of framing it he he sort of took out after biden for for going woke the president he said is also abandoning principles he held for decades now he says your tax dollars should fund abortions he's laying groundwork to pack the supreme court this is not common ground and nowhere do we need common ground more desperately than in our discussions of race i've experienced the pain of discrimination i know what it feels to be pulled over for no reason to be followed around a store while i'm shopping 
I remember every morning at the kitchen table, my grandfather would open the newspaper and read it, I thought, but later I realized he had never learned to read it. He just wanted to set the right example. I've also experienced a different kind of intolerance. I get called Uncle Tom and the N-word by progressives, by liberals. Just last week, a national newspaper suggested my family's poverty was actually privilege because a relative owned land generations before my time. Believe me, I know firsthand our healing is not finished. In 2015, after the shooting of Walter Scott, I wrote a bill to fund body cameras. Last year, after the deaths of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, I built an even bigger police reform proposal. But my Democratic colleagues blocked it. I extended an olive branch. I offered amendments, but Democrats used the filibuster to block the debate from even happening. When America comes together, we've made tremendous progress, but powerful forces want to pull us apart. A hundred years ago, kids in classrooms were taught the color of their skin was their most important characteristic, and if they looked a certain way, they were inferior. Today, kids again are being taught that the color of their skin defines them, and if they look a certain way, they're an oppressor. You know this stuff is wrong, he said. That is fantastic. So that is that is you know Abe you said and it's like true it's I, true uh, well it's fantastic and true but Abe you know you said like you you know Biden used the rhetoric of American greatness and and left you you know entirely cold this is also the rhetoric of American greatness it is the rhetoric of American greatness to say bad things have happened and we're addressing them and we've addressed them and you know what. A lot of the things that are blocking are addressing these effectively and significantly have to do with present day distortions, ideological distortions of the truth. So, you know, in that way, I think it was ultimately it, it, it ended up being a direct rebuttal to Biden because um, uh, Tim Scott's message was much grander um, and much more elevating than um we're going to spend a lot on stuff and win the 21st century. Um, it, and it, it harkened back um, to, to the things that, uh, you know, many of us continue to, to, to think is great about this country. I was also struck, the thought occurred to me after watching him, the two most moving, effective, uh, and best conservative speeches of this year, in my estimation, were delivered by Black Americans. Tim Scott and the, my other nominee is a, um, you know, maybe not what you would expect, but um, Tyler Perry at at the Academy Awards. And I say, not right wing, but conservative, which is not to say that Tyler Perry is necessarily conservative, but conservative in that it was uh, in in favor of moderation and and what it can do, and um, against extreme ideology. And I think um, what that says to me is that. People are missing a very, very important uh, story here about um, black Americans and, and, and minorities in this country. Um, there, everyone's, you know, all the focus is on the police and Black Lives Matter, you know, a billion of you whose protesters are like white kids. Um, and something very interesting is changing um, uh, in, 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 the, in black America. The Biden administration is missing it. Yep. Joe Biden won the primary due to its appeal to black voters. And what was the central premise of that appeal? It was the rejection of wokeism, of woke values. Um, 
Daily Caller actually had a really fantastic little video montage that they published the other day. They sent a reporter to um, Minnesota or Wisconsin. I think it was Minnesota uh, interviewing people on the street about urban violence, about the uh, rioting and, and the potential for yeah. uh, Minneapolis, the potential for, for violence. And every African-American they spoke with said, this is terrible. We hate this. These people don't represent us. The people who are protesting are protesting. The people who are rioting are rioting. They're very distinct populations. Don't conflate the two. And every white person they spoke with said, look, I get it. If you're going to, if you, no one's listening to you, you're going to have to burn things down. It's wrong, sort of, kind of, but. And can I shamefacedly admit that they interviewed, the man on the street interview of the, of all those white people happened in my, in, in my neck of the woods here in DC. And they were, they looked to me to be Georgetown college students, honestly, sure. by, they, they were about the age and demographic of most of Georgetown's campus. So I'm just yeah. putting that out there for. <laughs> Very privileged people for yes. burning down a business really mm-hmm. doesn't matter to them so much. But the Biden administration is populated with these very typical progressives, and they've forgotten the lessons that they taught everybody during the primary. Uh, or I thought they, I thought they taught everybody. Very much so. Uh, guys, uh, you probably upgraded a few things around the house after being stuck inside. Made sense. Now turn your yard into a paradise with fastgrowingtrees.com. Skip the big box stores and head to fastgrowingtrees.com, the world's largest online nursery. No more waiting in lines, messy cars, digging through a lackluster selection. Just go to fastgrowingtrees.com and choose from thousands of varieties of trees, shrubs, and plants expertly curated to thrive in your area and deliver to your door in one or two days. Whether you're looking for shade, privacy, fruit trees, or just added color for your yard, every plant is shipped with a well-developed root system ready to explode with new growth. There's a better way to buy trees and shrubs and plants for your home and yard, fastgrowingtrees.com. Join the over 1 million satisfied gardeners and its 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee means your plants will arrive happy, healthy, and ready for planting. Now, through June 30th, go to fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary for 15% off. That's 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary, fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary. Um, so uh, the new, I wanted to mention two things about the New York Times. Okay, One of them is that uh, as Republicans gear up for 2022 or whatever, the New York Times is turning into a daily document offering them exactly the kinds of headlines and positions uh, that can be used in every Repub- in every swing district everywhere to destroy Democrats in 2022. Let me just give you a few that are on this site right now. Biden makes case to vastly expand government's role. Okay? Biden seeks shift in how nation serves its people. The president's costly proposals amount to a risky gamble that a country polarized along (laughs) ideological and cultural lines is ready for a more activist government. Um, Hold on, there's some more. At 100 days, Biden is transforming what it means to be a Democrat, a lifelong centrist. President Biden has moved leftward with his party and is driving the biggest expansion of American government in decades. Diapers, cereal, and yes, toilet paper are going to get more expensive. Okay? This is like... Every single day. But Times readers send their nannies out to get that stuff. So they don't really, they won't even notice. (laughs) I mean, mean, 
seriously, like, are they are they trying to get Republicans to win 75 seats in the House? I mean, all of this is true, so it's accurate. But again, we just have to keep making this point. Biden got 51.4% of the vote. That's it. He didn't get 61, he got 51. Lyndon Johnson got 61 in 1964. Democrats ended up with a 155-seat majority in the House of Representatives and enacted the Great Society. And in 2020, Democrats lost 15 seats and have a five-seat majority in the House. They had 68 seats in the Senate in 1964. At the end of the 1964 election, they had 50 today. Transformative president, largest and most activist government in decades. Da 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 da. Who signed on for this? Well, and and he's to get this passed. Like I mean, he talks about how you know what a unifier is, and he and he said, didn't he mention either yesterday or the day before? I brought the Democrat. I've unified the Democratic Party, and there's no such thing as unified Republican Party. They're all crazy. Well, he's not. It's not that unified. I mean, a lot of the people he's going to need to sign on to this kind of spending are like first or second term uh, congressmen and women who come from rich suburbs. And if you if there's one thing rich suburbanites care about, it's whether their taxes are going to go up. I mean, you can you can say to you blue in the face that you support all kinds of expansion of the federal welfare state. But when the tax bill comes due for those people, they're going to want to understand how what the hit's going to be. And those representatives are going to have to explain it to them. Even okay. if it doesn't, this is all just a promissory note. Right, but that's, I mean, the, that's the worst. That's, that's the worst aspect because it doesn't matter whether right. or not it gets passed. These headlines exist. This right. is what Democrats and Biden want to create. But it doesn't, a but it doesn't materialize. In decades. But it doesn't materialize by 2022. Right, but here's my point. So the notion here is that yeah. the gamble is that pro- pro- progressives will be as energized to affirm this promise of a down payment on the future of their, you know, progressive vision, they will be more energized to turn out to the polls for that than Republicans will be energized to vote against it. And you can kind of see in the flicker of, you know, of of acknowledgement that this is a risky gamble when they, when they sort of throw that aside out there, that that is the risk and the risk is probably greater than the reward. I I just think that um, here's where you don't want to be overly ambitious because the framing of your ambition can be used in jujitsu fashion. Is that right, Christine? Did I use that? Did I use Yes, you could say jujitsu, yes. Okay, thank you. <laughs> to to harm yourself or to blow back against yourself because most of this isn't gonna happen, but the New York Times headlines and subheads are forever. So it happens or it doesn't happen, you're still tagged with having tried to do it or wanting to do it or letting people think that it happened and they need to go out and vote to stop it from happening still more. So here's why jujitsu is a good way of putting it. So in Japanese jujitsu, for example, you often start with your head in a headlock thinking, oh, this is terrible. I got to get out of this. And you end up very quickly flinging an opponent over your shoulder. But the idea is to stun the other person when they think that they have the advantage and they're doing, they're bringing, they're bringing the pain. Suddenly they find themselves on the ground stunned and they don't have no idea what happened. That's why it's the perfect example of maybe some Americans will be feeling that pain and be stunned. Like, how did we get here? That's so I like that metaphor, but that's just me. Right. So anyway, I mean, he plays, he's playing the hand that he was dealt 
as I say, I think A.B. Sard's right that there's a there's a degree of improvisation here that should lead people, Democrats and everything, to be less confident that there is a considered intelligence going on that thinks that this is wise. And as Noah keeps saying, it's almost as though having ignored Twitter and social media for two years, they are now going to it hungrily to get all kinds of emotional support for the idea that they can turn this into a transformative presidency and you shouldn't be listening to online media and social media to get your political cues about what most people think and what most people want. And can I just add one other little data point from last night's uh, speech, which is, you know, they couldn't do the first lady's box with all the representatives. But in terms of and, and Noah has talked about this very eloquently about the culture by uh, Biden being a not being a culture warrior, which is what they keep claiming. The, some of the guests that Jill Biden virtually discussed with, uh, talked to before the speech, one's a transgender rights activist, one's a gun rights activist, and one is a uh, child who was brought to the country illegally. Um, those sound pretty culture warish to me, but maybe I'm wrong. What did, what did CNN call him yesterday? A moderate radical? Yeah, a moderate radical. Joe Biden. Moderate. The moderate radical, yes. Okay, now let's talk about um, a moderate psychopath uh, or a psychopathic moderate. <laughs> I think moderates are, and maybe immoderate psychopath. I'm, of course, referring to Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York, big story in the New York Times that just keeps digging the hole deeper about the conscious and deliberate uh, false information, suppression of information about the death toll in New York State from the calamitous decision to send uh, COVID patients back to nursing homes to spread COVID at nursing homes and then systematically undercount those deaths by as much as 50%, according to the Attorney General of New York. This new story in the New York Times details how they knew perfectly well inside the senior uh, levels of New York State's health department and everything that this was happening. They had prepared reports to send to the state Senate as was their, uh, as was their requirement that were suppressed and that Cuomo and particularly his aide, uh, Melissa DeRosa, were consciously and deliberately playing with all of this because of his book and because of his, you know, because of his newly minted status as a straight talking um, American hero. And, you know, look, the guy has proven that you can't presume that somebody is going to be driven from office because of his ill behavior. Look at what's going on with Ralph Northam in Virginia, right? I mean, everyone thought he was gone and he has a 65% approval rating, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I mean, uh, this is going to go down in some fashion as, as, as one of the most horrifying things that any American politician has ever done, I think. Um, and, you know, uh, you really have to be a psychopath to sort of walk around freely having allowed yourself to be garlanded as a hero when you were staring evidence in the face that your the decision that you made inadvertently and almost certainly killed thousands of people. Not allowed yourself to be garlanded as a hero, but um, to, to work vigorously by suppressing the truth so that you will be garlanded as a hero. Um, 
And meanwhile, uh, I, yeah, go ahead. I was please. just gonna say, I, I mean, I'm old enough to rem remember the Bush lied, people died bumper sticker. I mean, there's a there's a sense in which the you know the left loves to hold uh, people on the right accountable for for uh, government action that leads to to death. And I can't think. I mean, I'm I'm awaiting the Cuomo lied, people died bumper sticker. It actually would be an accurate assessment of what he did to people in nursing homes. All right. Well, uh, we have uh, we have uh, gone back to our uh, old standby uh, hatred expression. Our two-minute hate or Emmanuel Goldstein hate of uh, of Andrew Cuomo, except he deserves it and is a real villain and is basically now being exposed as such in every way, shape, or form. Uh, while the uh, villainous Ron DeSantis um, gallops his way toward the 2024 nomination. Um, uh, unless Tim Scott, uh, you know, uh, uh, laps him. And then, of course, there is, of course, the... Uh, the Macy's uh, uh, Thanksgiving Day balloon of Donald Trump possibly blotting out the sun. But right now, it's too early to think about this because we have to watch the Biden administration try to destroy our economy, uh, ruin our education system, and uh, and uh, you know and 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 foment racial more racial strife. So that's really our task right now, and we will be tracking it, and we'll see, we'll meet, we'll see you again tomorrow. For Abe, Christina Noam, John Pot Horitz, keep the candle burning.